0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver. Today, we will have probably our longest program since I started doing the show solo over the last three months. I will go over Saturday night's Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York fight card. Then I will uh, talk about <laughs> the circus that has been canceled and the truth behind it being canceled, not the bullshit. The media is feeding fight fans and the public all over the world. I will go into another Q&A session, answering three questions from three very, very, uh, loyal and knowledgeable listeners. And then I will read my profile on my 29th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. My articles going up to number 12 are from 45 to 12 are currently on the Fight Game Media website, fightgamemedia.com. Well, my number 29 that I wrote about seven, eight months ago was on terry norris and i'll be talking about terrible terry norris today on the program before i start with saturday night's festivities at the barclay center want you guys to check out the fight game media youtube page where you could see uh, a few of my historical retrospectives on my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years on that website also if you want to support uh me and listen to bonus boxing content as well as exclusive combat sports uh, content on mixed martial arts and pro wrestling and the great the great uh people over at fight game media patreon podcasts do the best job at covering pro wrestling ufc we're talking guys like the ceo of the website, Gary Gonzalez, his right-hand man, a great man in Justin Nipper, Justin Nipper, and the greatest Japanese wrestling historian on the planet, the Rob Silva of Japan when it comes to, re- to wrestling historians. He's to wrestling historians as I am to boxing historian, historians. And that is the legendary Fumi Saito, the Booker John Laraka. The great JD Oliva, um, the king of TNA slash impact his, history, as far as historians go, Mike Gilbert, uh, my buddy Parker Parker Clint, and a whole host of others, they do a great job. And as far as the Patreon page goes, is on the link in the web in, in on the description of the of this podcast. For $5 a month, you get their coverage of UFC, MMA, Bellator, AEW, WWE, Impact, MLW, NWA, and um, any much show uh, wrestling card that happens, they will cover it. But you get my monthly greatest upsets in boxing history. I'm coming out soon. I have to record it. I'm off the next couple of days, so I'll probably record it either today or tomorrow. My latest greatest upset. In the history of boxing, and later down in the month, at the end of the month, Garrett and I will be doing a weekly Patreon podcast on the Mike Tyson Hulu docu series. I believe Trevante Rhodes is playing a young Mike Tyson. And by the way, Mike never looked that handsome or was that tall. But I digress. Now on to the program Saturday night july thirtieth barclay center didn't didn't attend this card i even though I took the day off from work, I was too busy, and I was in Brooklyn, but was too busy with my baby and my nephew hanging out eating some great Jamaican food, and then um spent the rest of the time watching the med game. I'd rather watch the med game than watch what I believe was not that great of a card and it wound up being not that great of a card. By the way, I will be attending the Shakur Stevenson fight in Newark on September twenty third. So uh stay tuned for uh information about that card and I will be talking. I might even uh do a few clips live from from um the uh the prudential center where Shakur Stevenson is fighting. Anyway Save my money, Watch the fight on Showtime, and I will be talking more about the circus later on, but uh, for those of you who do not know, and if you don't know, you've been living on the rock, especially if you're a boxing fan listening to this show, because the hardest of the hardcore boxing fans listen to this show, the Jake Paul circus has been canceled. More on that later. Showtime was supposed to show that on pay-per-view. Well, Showtime opens up the, the broadcast with Brian Custer, who always hosts the Showtime shows. And he opens it up by saying, oh, it's the first of two consecutive weekends here in New York City that Showtime will be covering boxing. No one gave him the memo because less than two, less than an hour to two, I believe an hour to two before he came on the year, before Showtime came on the air that card had been, the Jake Paul card had been canceled. The circus act had been canceled. So Brian Custer mentioned that it would be the first of two consecutive weekends. And for the rest of the night, there was no mention of A, the pay-per-view, or B, the pay-per-view being canceled, or circumstances surrounding the cancellation. Showtime does this shit all the time. First of all, for Showtime to be associated with a circus freak, with a clown, with a fucking idiot like Jake Paul, brings their credibility down. And I love the Showtime, um, Showtime boxing. They show the best fights. They have two of the best announcers on the planet. Three of the best announcers on the planet in Steve Farhood, Raul Marquez, and Al Bernstein. Mar Ronaldo with his Mama Mia can get the fuck out my face. And Abner Morris with his sunglasses and his incoherent rants can shut the fuck up. Brian Campbell is a great up and coming boxing announcer. So, four out of six, if you do the math, if you reduce, if you deduce it, two out of three ain't bad. The mother two clowns, I'm tired of Mar Ronaldo, please. And he doesn't know the difference between hooking across either. Shut the fuck up. Anyway. So let's get into the, into the meat of the matter, the fights from Saturday night. First off, we start off with Gary Antoine Russell, one of the best young fighters on the planet, coming off his biggest win over Victor Postel, former uh, junior welterweight champion. Gary Antoine Russell, very talented, has the ability to become the next great 140-pound champion, but his father recently passed a few months ago, and I believe it affected his performance because he did not look sharp. He got stunned twice in the first round by his opponent, Rancis Bartholomew, Cuban fighter who has underachieved his entire career. He's lucky to only have one loss and one draw going into this fight because he's developed into a a runner, but in this fight, he didn't run. He came out, at uh, Gary, and he took it to Gary, stunned him in the first round, stunned him later on in the fight, and after the first five rounds, I had Russell winning only by one round, three rounds to two. Bartholomew was giving Russell and gave Russell the toughest fight of his career. Then, unfortunately, round six occurred. Got to give Gary Antoine Russell credit, even though he was fighting with a heavy heart. He adjusted like very good to possibly great fighters do, and he has the potential to be a great fighter. He's not there yet because he hasn't beaten an elite fighter yet, but he has the potential to be an all-time great. Just give it time. In the sixth round, Russell dropped Bartholomew with a beautiful right hook, and Bartholomew was was hurt, but Bartholomew got right up. Bartholomew got up probably by the count of two. And he was coherent as referee Shada Murdoch counted, gave him the mandatory eight count, and then inexplicably, Murdoch stopped the fight. Shada, what were you doing? One of the worst stoppages I've seen recently. The referee stopped the fight. was had gotten up at the count of two. He was very coherent. Referee stopped the fight. I know it was early in the round, as Al Bernstein mentioned, and maybe he was taking that into the into account, but no. Been watching boxing now for 46 years. You give the fighter the benefit of the doubt if he's coherent, he's standing. You He, he got up at the count of two, you counted to eight. It's not like he got up at the count of eight or nine and was on wobbly legs. He wasn't on wobbly legs. What was Murdoch doing? Stop the fight. Russell wins, and, man, I hate seeing the referee or the judges take away, officials, boxing officials, take away the fight from a guy that didn't do anything to lose the fight. Now, yes, he was losing the fight, and that would have been a 10-8 round, and he probably 99 times out of 100 would have lost that fight, but he was giving Russell trouble. He hurt Russell a couple of times. We don't know if he might have gotten uh, uh, caught Russell coming in, Russell going for the kill, walks into something. We don't know. We will never know. Because Murdo took the fight out of the fighter's hands unnecessarily. And it wouldn't be the first horrible, horrible act by a boxing official that night in Brooklyn. So Gary Russell continues on his path to becoming a future 140-pound champion. He will be. He's that good. Um, uh, the fight I really want to see, and I know Regis Progress is now going to fight for one of the vacant titles, for one of the vacant um, titles that Josh Taylor gave up. I believe he's, uh, Regis Progress will now be fighting for the WBC title, and I believe Progress will win that WBC title. I would love to see Pro Grace fight Gary Antoine Russell sometime next year. That would be a hell of a fight because, in my opinion, those are the two most talented fighters at 140 pounds. Now, you had the second fight. This looked like a barroom brawl between two drunks at 4 o'clock in the morning in an Irish pub in uh Midtown Manhattan right you had Adam Koznaki Koznaki however you say his name no matter how you say Adam Koznaki's name Koz Kos- however you say Adam Koznaki Koznaki's name he's a human punching bag so was the guy who beat him Ali Demarezin. these guys went Toe to toe for 10 rounds. Yes, they both have decent offensive skills. They both have nice left jab, right cross combos. I'll give them that. Both men, both men defensively, putrid is not the word. They block punches with their chins, with their face, with their skulls. And neither man has great punching power. So for 10 rounds, they beat each other, right, senselessly. Demarizan winning a very comfortable uh, decision. I had him winning the fight, but man, uh, these guys—they're not even gatekeepers. I mean, a, the best of the best heavyweights will will splatter them ag- across the camp. They put Demarizan in the ring with with Deontay Wilder. It could be the first time you see a death in a heavyweight fight in a in in, in a heavyweight fight involving a former world heavyweight champion on national television because he has no business fighting Uh, Demarese has no business fighting the Wilders, the Furies, the Joe Joyces uh, the Alexander Usyks the Jared Andersons of the world No, he could fight the Gerald Washingtons the the Konakis the Kosnakis, the Konaskis however you say his fucking name he could fight those guys just like Konaki could fight Those type of fighters. Don't put them in with the elite uh, heavyweights or even a Luis Ortiz because they'll get starched. Starched. All right. Now on. Now on uh, to the main event of the evening. Danny Garcia coming off a 19-month layoff against Jose Benavidez. Now, I know Benavidez is the taller fighter. But Garcia was the bigger fighter, naturally. Jose Benavidez's best days were at 135 pounds as a lightweight. Moved up to 140, got his ass handed to him by Terrence Crawford. Now he's at 154? Why? Why? He couldn't knock guys out at 135. He's going to try and... I predicted on another show that Garcia would win easily. And once again, my undefeated streak continues for 2022. I was right again. This was an easy win by Garcia. Garcia looked sharp. He do a nice jab. He was banging that body all night long. I had him winning eleven out of twelve rounds easily. Benavidez would show some spurts of activity, like he would for thirty seconds land five, six combinations in a row, and then don't then wouldn't, wouldn't throw a punch for two minutes. Wouldn't throw another punch for two minutes. He was. Horribly enacted throughout the fight. That's why Garcia won 11 out of the 12 rounds on my scorecard. Judge Valeska Roldan scored the fight 114 114. Where in the fucking world did he find six rounds? Where? How? How did Roldan find six rounds for Benavides to win? I don't think if you took the entire audience at the Barclay Center that night and tabulated all the rounds that you might have found six rounds total amongst the 15,000 people that 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 uh, <laughs> showed up that night at the Barclay Center. What was he looking at? This was an easy, easy win by Danny Garcia, and he gave Benavidez six rounds? what the fuck unreal unreal ladies and gentlemen it's stuff like this that gives boxing a black eye this man has no business judging another big fight they need to suspend him from all major national television fights, all major title fights. But of course that won't happen because we have four criminal cartels fronting as boxing sanctioning bodies. They do what the hell they want when they want. They will continue to give this guy high profile fights and he will continue to butcher the scorecards, period, end of story. Speaking of criminal cartels, this is a perfect segue, ladies and gentlemen, to the Circus Act that was canceled. The day before the Circus Act uh, occurred, uh, was canceled, rather, Friday, this past Friday, Mauricio Suleiman, the crime lord of the World Boxing Council, the drug lord, the crime lord, whatever you want to call him, he's a criminal. His father, Jose, was a criminal. Um, I remember back in 1978 Billy Martin was being interviewed by, by a New York sports writer and Billy Martin was drunk this was like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning they were at a bar drinking together and the Yankees had come off a five game winning streak in which Reggie Jackson hadn't played in any of those games because Billy Martin had suspended Reggie for five games and the writer asked Billy Martin, was he proud that his Yankees won without their star Reggie Jackson? And Billy Martin was like, well, I, t- I told George Steinbrenner we never needed him. But he loves Billy. He loves Reggie. They belong together. They're both the same. They're both liars. They're both the same type of people. They're both liars. One's convicted, The other was a born liar. Well, Jose and Mauricio have never been convicted, but they both are born liars. Mauricio Suleiman's a born crook. He inherited that from his father, Jose. Now, what did he do Friday that has me upset? (laughs) Amongst a, a, a myriad of crimes he's done, combined with his father over the 60 years of the WBC, He, this is ridiculous. He told the world after meeting with Jake Paul that if Jake Paul wins his fight, the fight that I will talk about that was canceled against Roxane Rockman Jr., he will be rated in the top 10 in the WBC's next rankings. What the fuck? Jake Paul has beaten Tyrone Woodley twice, who's a UFC fighter. Ben Askren, who's a UFC fighter, and Nate Robinson, an NBA player that didn't even spar once before stepping in the ring in what was supposed to be a celebrity exhibition fight. All of a sudden, they turned it into a real pro fight. Jake Paul has an actual record on BoxRec, even though he's never beaten a legitimate boxer. The media, the boxing media, the national press, has built this guy into a legit boxer. They write about this guy like he moves the needle. At first, he was a gimmick that young people flocked to watch. No longer. His last pay-per-view, the rematch against Tyrone Woodley, did 65,000 pay-per-view buys. Okay. His now-canceled Pay per view that was supposed to happen in Madison Square Garden next Saturday night, the mecca of boxing, would have done worse. And ticket sales are the reason why this fight was was canceled. Not any weight discrepancies that Jake Paul claimed. Hasin Rockman was undergoing was partaking in. Haseen Rockman had to get down to 200 pounds from 224 pounds in three to four weeks, which can't happen. Jake Paul was trying to strip this guy of all his strength before the fight. But it doesn't matter because that's not happening. That fight is not going to happen because Jake Paul announced Saturday, an hour or two before the Barclay center card, that the fight was off. And he blamed it on Hoxine Rockman Jr. Failing to live up to the terms of the contract. That's bullshit. All right. The reason this fight was canceled was because Madison Square Garden. A week away from the fight was less than half full. 20,000 seat arena, less than 10,000 tickets had been sold. I right? had been checking every day on Ticketmaster to see what was going on because I wanted to laugh because I predicted that this fight would be a flop and it happened. I predicted from the beginning about Jake Paul. You had established boxing journalists come at me on social media saying, oh, man, Silver, you got to calm down. This guy's good for boxing. And I get in an argument with them. And they blocked me. That The biggest one was that fucking Sap, Sean Ross Sap, who said, Ah, you don't know what you're talking about. Mr. Sap, if you happen to listen, I know more boxing in in my ass than you know in your entire body. You don't know shit about boxing, right? And yet you're going to tell me that Jake Paul was good for the sport of boxing. It was going to bring new eyes to the sport. The last fight did 65,000 pay-per-views, buys. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of boxing, if he's so fucking popular, the face of the sport that some journalists were claiming, he would have sold out Madison Square Garden the first night. Now, I want to compare Jake Paul to AEW. Credit AEW, because whenever they have a major card, whether it's pay-per-view or in New York, when they went to Arthur Ashe Stadium last year, they sell out immediately. Their fans are into the product. All right. You could say whatever you want about the product. And I hate the fucking product, but that has nothing to do with the fact that they sell tickets. They came to New York and they sold out Arthur Ashe Stadium. The WWE, amongst his controversy with their former owner, the founder of the company, uh, the the, <laughs> the face of the company, putting his stick in women that didn't want their stick being put in, right, put into them, right, had to resign, right. The product stinks, right they sold out Master Square Garden for their Raw that happened last Monday. And I don't wanna hear of boxing fans, Jake Paul fans saying, oh, they they always play the garden. Uh, Back in December, they had a card at Master Square Garden that drew flies, right? That they had to give away seats. They didn't have to give away seats last Monday. They sold out Master Square Garden. And this is a product that's horrible, right? Horrible. Other than Roman Reigns and a couple of other dudes, the product is unwatchable. But they sold out Master Square Garden, right? Jake Paul couldn't sell half the tickets. And that was with one of the hottest female boxers of all time, Amanda Serrano. On the card, Coming off one of the greatest, if not the greatest, female fight of all time, her fight against Katie Taylor, which sold out Madison Square Garden right away. Now, he's got a hot act on the undercard. People weren't buying it. A, we're in a recession. B, people now see what Jake Paul is. He's a fucking circus act. What I said from the beginning, I was proven right he's going to continue to flop. But ladies and gentlemen, do you know how much it costs to rent Madison Square Garden? $500,000, half a million dollars. In order to profit at Madison Square Garden, 10,000 seats are not going to make a profit, especially after you have to pay Armando Serrano, fake Paul, Hasim Rockman Jr., and the rest of the undercard and the pay-per-view buys (laughs) weren't going to cover the cost. it would have been a monumental loss for all parties involved. So what probably happened is that Steven Espinosa in Showtime told Jake, look, we're going to have to cancel this card because we are going to bleed money. And Jake went and put the blame on Haseen Rockman Jr. because he had a built-in excuse. I hope Jake Paul... Never fights again. He will. And he will continue fighting a who's who of Uber drivers, uh, circus animals, UFC freaks, MMA cast-offs. Maybe he'll fight a 55-year-old former boxer in his next fight. The minute he steps in with a legit fighter, he's going to go to the hospital. And I'm going to get on this podcast and laugh my fucking ass off. Fuck you, Jake Paul. Have a nice day. By the way, before I go on to the question and answer session, I know I give this guy a hard time. I do not like how he criminally underpays his fighters. But Dana White was right. So I give the devil his due. Dana White is the only guy. The media is not reporting. By the way, the media, the national media is not reporting the horrific ticket sales that this fight was, was undergoing before it was canceled. But Dana White, Saturday night at a press conference, after his latest UFC um card, which you could follow on on this website. In the Clinch, great show. In the Clinch covers UFC MMA extensively. Check out that podcast. They will cover what happened Saturday night. I don't watch UFC. So I Can never comment on their fights because I've never seen a UFC fight in my life. But I got to give Dana White credit for what he said at the press conference. He said that the fight wasn't canceled because of Haxim Rockman Jr. not um, following the terms of the contract and losing weight. It was canceled because Madison Square Garden was less than half full. It was going to be a disaster. It was going to be a financial flop. Dana White would know. He's rented out MSG and sold out MSG. Under to my understanding, time in and time out. Uh, Fake Paul, your fifteen minutes is up. Get the fuck out of here. Now on to the question and answer segment of the podcast. Jake Paul, you're a fucking clown. And the dude's had the nerve to tell me, "Oh, oh, oh he, he's the oh, he's gonna bring boxing to the youth. He's gonna get more. Get me get the fuck out of here." All right. Now on to the question and answer section session of the program. First off, uh, to my man Big Malcolm on Twitter, what's up, Big Malcolm? great boxing mind. The man knows his sport. I love talking to Malcolm. I love all three guys that I'll be answering questions for today. I love talking to boxing because they follow the sport. They're not, they don't have ridiculous takes. They're very knowledgeable. All right. He, uh, Malcolm asked, give me your top five trainers. So he wants to know who I believe are my top five greatest trainers of all time. You can rank these guys anywhere from one to five, but personally, these are my five off the top of my head. Malcolm, I uh, I was thinking about this, but I didn't write anything down, so I'm going to talk through it. Um, Nacho Beristine is, is in my top five. He's the greatest Mexican trainer of all time. It's not even close. The man has trained so many legendary fighters. Okay. Beginning with Vicente Saldívar back in the 1960s, right? Then he trained Daniel Saragoza, one of the most underrated Mexican fighters of all time, multi-world champion, in the International Boxing Hall of Fame as is Saldívar. Okay. The the Marquez brothers, the greatest Mexican brother duo of all time, maybe the greatest boxing brother duo of all time. In Rafael Marquez and, of course, Juan Manuel Marquez, one of the greatest counterpunchers of all time, one of the greatest Mexican fighters of all time, the man who almost killed Manny Pacquiao with a single right cross counter. And he continues this day as he has a new world champion in Ray Vargas. Nacho Beristin is that dude, great trainer, great trainer. He does it train the Mexican style of brawling. He trains fighters to counter punch to box to look for weaknesses in their opponents. Nacho Beristine is in my top five. Georgie Benton the greatest greatest trainer of defense in the history of boxing. The brains behind Lou Duva. Georgie e. Benton trained Leon Spinks in his fight against Muhammad Ali when Spinks shocked the world. Georgie e. Benton was the mastermind behind Pernell Whitaker and Meldrick Taylor. Georgie e. Benton my, is in my top five greatest trainers of all time. You've got Angelo Dundee. Angie! Angie, can I talk to you for a second? Angie, come over here. Angie, what's going on with Ali? Angelo Dundee lived into his 90s and trained so many great fighters, so many great fighters to great victories, the two biggest being Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard. If Dundee didn't train anybody else, other than just Ali and Leonard, he would be in my top five. Angelo Dundee is in my top five greatest trainers of all time. Then we've got Emmanuel Stillett, the king of the cronk, another man who died way too young. Manuel, the list of great fighters Emmanuel Stewart has trained over the years is on the same level as Dundee and the man I'll be talking to talking about after I talk about Emmanuel Stewart. Stewart trained world champions such as Hill McKenty, Mike McCollum. The list is endless. Endless. Gerald McClellan who unfortunately McClellan fired before his tragic fight against Nigel Benn but, uh, but the two greatest fighters that Emmanuel Stewart trained were Thomas Hearns and Lennox Lewis and now again if you take away all the other fighters including uh, Vladimir Klitschko who Emmanuel Stewart trained and was a world champion for several years under the guidance of Emmanuel Stewart if you just look at Lennox Lewis and Thomas Hearns and the work Manuel Stewart did with both these guys, he'd be in your top five. He resurrected, he resurrected Lennox Lewis's career from a timid counterpuncher who's looking to knock you out one shot to a guy who fought tall with one of the greatest jabs in boxing history. Thomas Hearns has, in my opinion, the second greatest left jab of all time and, in my opinion, the greatest offensively gifted fighter in the history of the sport. That was all Emanuel Stewart's doing. Emmanuel Stewart was a father figure to Thomas Hearns. When Thomas Hearns, as a 12-year-old, came from Memphis, Tennessee, his family moved from Memphis to Detroit, Emanuel Stewart took him under his wing, And made him, helped make him into a man and helped make him into one of the greatest fighters ever, not only to ever come out of Memphis, Tennessee, or to be uh, uh, taught how to fight in Detroit, Michigan, but one of the greatest fighters that ever lived. And Lennox Lewis, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. He's anywhere from one to five on many people's list as greatest heavyweights of all time. Emmanuel Stewart molded that man into being a great, great fighter. He only lost one time under Stewart's uh, care. And, he, and he, that was Hoxine Rockman Sr. But he came back a few months later and almost killed Rockman with a beautiful left hook right cross combination that bounced Rockman's head off the, off the canvas like a basketball. And, in my opinion, the greatest trainer that ever lived, Eddie Futch. Eddie Futch was a master. Eddie Futch's fighters never quit. Eddie Futch trained some of the greatest fighters of all time. And he saved Joe Frazier's life. Eddie Futch trained a who's who of great fighters. Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, Michael Spinks, Larry Holmes, Alexis Arguello, Mike McCollum. When McCollum had a falling out of Emanuel Stewart, he had his greatest greatest success under the tutelage of Eddie Futch. Mike McCollum in the ring looked like he was... Coming out of Eddie Futch's brain, he fought the way Eddie Futch trained a master scientist inside the ring. And Eddie Futch got the best out of Riddick Bo. Riddick Bo was one of the most naturally gifted heavyweights that ever lived, but his work ethic was lacking. Riddick Bo, under Eddie Futch, when he was focused, was damn near unbeatable. His first fight against Evander Holyfield. Uh, his fights against Jorge Gonzalez and his fights and his fight against the third fight against uh, Lennox Lewis. But Eddie Futch, once he saw that Riddick Bow had... Oh, let me backtrack. Riddick Bow never fought Lennox Lewis. Did I say Lennox Lewis? My bad. Riddick Bow's third fight against Evander Holyfield no. Eddie Futch wasn't training Riddick Bowe when Riddick Bowe lost to Lennox Lewis in the amateurs for the Olympic gold medal in 1988. So I misstated there. Anyway, back to Eddie Futch. Eddie Futch got the best out of Riddick Bowe when Riddick Bowe's work ethic was lacking. Whenever he got Riddick Bowe to fight at 100%, Riddick Bowe was damn near unbeatable. But in his last two fights against Galata, he didn't even want to get out of bed to train. Eddie Futch saw this, and Eddie Futch stopped training uh, Riddick Bowe. Riddick Bowe retired and came back years later for a few uh, horrible, horrible comeback fights, which Riddick Bowe had no business participating in. Anyway, Eddie Futch, my greatest trainer of all time. So that's my top five, uh, uh, uh Big Malcolm. Um all five Hall of Famers, all five illustrious. You, you have others that you could consider. Gil Clancy was a great trainer. Uh Freddie Roach. I don't have Freddie Roach in my top five because he was a student. A, he was a student of Eddie Futch. Eddie Futch was the master. Eddie Futch is better than him. And B. Natural, uh, Nacho Barristan keeps kicking his ass so you can't have a spot over Nacho if you can't beat if your fighters can't beat Nacho's fighters end of story all right on to my next question and my next question is from Let me make sure I get this right all right divided we fall on Twitter what's up brother and he writes Rank these one to five in their prime. Duran, Leonard, Benitez, Hearns, and Hagler. Divided we fall are mentioning the four kings and the unofficial fifth king in Wilfred Benitez. In their prime. So I'm going to talk about how all rank in their prime. Number five would be Benitez. I've always said that Wilfred Benitez was the most talented Puerto Rican fighter that ever lived. Naturally gifted, world champion at 17, beating the greatest Colombian fighter of all time, Antonio Cervantes, outboxing him. Then beating the great Carlos Palomino when he was only 20 years old. Benitez was 20 when he beat Carlos Palomino in 1979 to win the WBC and ring welterweight championship. But then, bad habits and fighting way too young he was washed up by the age of 23-24 um, his career should have been a whole lot better than it was but in his prime which was from 1976 to 1982 before he lost the step and was never the same Benitez was great but he's number 5 because during this prime he lost to both Sugar Ray Leonard and Thomas Hearns and I can't put him above those guys if he lost to those guys while in his prime of these top five in their prime number four would be man I hate to say this because he's my favorite fighter of these five but Thomas Hearns in his prime is number four and I hate to say that but I gotta give the devil his due he's number four Hearns' prime was 1980 from when he knocked out Pepino Cuevas to 1987 because in 1988 he got knocked out by Iran Barkley. You could hear about that on the Patreon podcast I did on the greatest upsets in boxing history, $5 a month. Back to uh, Thomas Hearns. From 1980 to 1988, it is prime. He Yes, he knocked out Roberto Duran, but Duran was past his prime. He was giving Sugar Ray Leonard a boxing lesson before he got hurt and stopped in the 14th round, and he got knocked out by Marvin Hagler in the third round. I can't put Hearns above Hagler and Leonard when he lost to both of them during his prime. So number four is in his prime, during their primes, Thomas Hittman Hearns. Number three, this is this this, is, this was hard. This was hard. The top three are hard, but I'm going to try and justify my answers. Number three would be Sugar Ray Lennon. Now, I know people are going to say, well, he beat Marvin Hagler. He didn't beat Marvin Hagler doing either of their primes. It wasn't Sugar Ray Lennon's prime. It wasn't Marvin Hagler's prime. Sugar Ray Leonard's prime was from 1979 to 1982. Three-year window. It was very short. Yes, he beat Benitez and he beat Hearns and he beat Duran during his prime. But it was too short of a window, in my opinion. Now, had he continued fighting, and had he had beaten Hagler in 82-83, had he not suffered a detached retina? Because remember, he fought one time in 84 and came back in 87. This is Sugar Greenland's prime. His prime was glorious, but it was too short for him to be, were we just talking prime, to be the best fighter in their prime on this list. So he's number three on my list. Number two, marvelous Marvin Hagler. Now you say, well, he beat Thomas Herbs. Yes. Marvin Hagler's prime was from 1979 to 1985 from when he got robbed against Vito Anafermo until he knocked out Thomas Hearns. The guy who beat Mugabe and lost a questionable decision to Sugar Ray Leonard was no longer in his prime. I'm talking about marvelous Marvin Hagler. In his prime, he knocked out Thomas Hearns and he obliterated everybody in the middleweight division. He beat my number one. He beat past his prime in Roberto Duran. Looking at your prime of these five fighters, Duran would be my number one. And you say, but wait a minute. Duran lost to Leonard twice. Yes. One time was past his prime. Second time, we don't know what the hell was going on in Duran's head at the time when he quit in that second fight against Sugar Ray Leonard and when he when he almost beat Marvin Hagler, he was past his prime, okay? And when he got knocked out by Thomas Hearns, A, he was past his prime, and B, that's, that would have never been a win for Duran. Duran was too small to even give Thomas Hearns a quality fight. That was a huge mismatch, would always be a huge mismatch. Now, Why is uh, Roberto Duran my number one in his prime of all these fighters we're talking about? Roberto Duran's prime was from 1972 to 19... I'll say 1980, because after the second Leonard fight, he did lose a step, and he lost to a guy, to guys he had no business losing to after that, but from 72 to 1980, he beats up He obliterates Kid Buchanan. He shockingly loses in a non-title fight to Esteban De Jesus, but he twice knocks out De Jesus in rematches. He beat a great Carlos Palomino by outboxing Carlos Palomino, not slugging with Carlos Palomino. Roberto Duran was one of the greatest boxer punches that ever lived. Everybody looks at him as this inside fighter. One of the greatest inside fighters of all time. He's one of the greatest defensive inside fighters of all time. He beat a prime Sugar Ray Leonard in the biggest fight of Roberto Duran's career in Montreal, Canada, in front of 46,000 people, June 20th, 1980. That's why he's my number one. Greatest lightweight champion I've ever seen during his prime. He beat a great Carlos Palomino, and he beat a legendary Sugar Ray Leonard. And of course, he quit in his second fight, and then after that, took a sabbatical for a while, came back, lost to Kirkland Lang, uh, but then he was able to turn around, beat Davy Moore, give Marvin Hagler hell, then got, got knocked out by uh, Thomas Hearns, but all past his prime. So there you go, divided we fall a thorough, thorough answer to your question. Now, on to the final question by a young up-and-coming boxer. What's up, Eli? Wanted by the a on Twitter. And Eli asked, let me get this question. What the hell happened to my questions? See, I hate when this happens. Okay, here we go. All right. This is Eli's question. I'm to come clean. I think our current era can be deemed the golden age for real over the 1980s. What you think, Rob? You've been watching boxing since the early 70s. Well, not the early 70s. I started watching boxing in the late 70s, 1977. So I was 12 years old when the 1980s. Well, I was 11 years old when the 19 when 1980 began and I was. 21 when the 80s ended in 1989 so yeah and and I'm a boxing historian and I saw everybody and I just mentioned five great fighters from the 80s the question that divided we fall ask answers Eli's question name me five fighters five that are greater than the five I just talked about who had some of their greatest moments in the 80s. Hagler, Hearns, and Leonard had their greatest moments in the 80s. Uh, Benitez had, uh, had a couple. And Duran had, had, had a few. If you look at today's era, and let's include Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is definitely in the conversation among those five, amongst those five. Floyd is on their level, without a doubt. Floyd is the greatest defensive fighter I've ever seen in my lifetime. And he put on virtuoso performances against Manny Pacquiao, Juan Manuel Marquez, Diego Corrales, and Canelo Alvarez. So, yes, put Floyd there, no doubt. Canelo is not on the same level as those five guys. No, he's not. He's not. Canelo's prime does not compare to the five guys' primes I'm talking about. Okay. Canelo's in his prime right now. Name me a fighter that Canelo beat that's on the level of the five guys I just talked about. None. And Canelo's a great fighter. Love Canelo. Canelo is a complete fighter. Canelo lost his biggest fight to Floyd Mayweather, which he was not competitive. Okay. Yeah, he beat Triple G once and had a draw with Triple G. Triple G is not on the level of five fucking fighters I talked about. And Triple G, we want to end the conversation as he's part of this era right now, has never beaten anybody on the level of those five fighters. Let's go division by division. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua has never beaten anybody on the level of those five fighters. Okay, And all three, in my opinion, are Hall of Fame fighters. Tyson Fury is the first by Hall of Famer. Joshua and Wilder, I believe, will get into the International Ball Hall of Fame. They belong in there. Alexander Yusick. Let's just compare Alexander Yusick to everybody that, that they compare him to, and that's Evander Holyfield. Yes, Yusick beat Anthony, Anthony Joshua and is a former undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world. Anthony Joshua is not on the level of the fighters. Evander Holyfield beat the Riddick Bowe's, The George Foremans. The Mike Tysons. Okay. This era versus the 80s. But I digress. Holyfield's biggest wins were in the 90s. So I'm going to take Holyfield out of the equation, we're just talking 80s, because in the 80s, Holyfield dominated the Cruiserweight division, Usyk in this era dominated the Cruiserweight division, they're my one and two Cruiserweight, so I'll call that a push, all right, so Usyk was on Evander Holyfield's level this era versus Evander Holyfield in the 80s, so I digress. Then... um. Th- that's the only cruiserweight that was on Holyfield's level this era versus last era. If we go to light heavyweights, no light heavyweight in this era is on the level of Michael Spinks from the 1980s, period. End of story. Super middleweights, super middleweight division did not uh, come into existence until, until the mid 80s. So I will give Canelo the edge over all the super middleweights from the 1980s. Middleweights, you And we're talking Canelo, Charlo, Triple G. Marvin Hagler ruled the 80s. There's not a middleweight that's been, not even Bernard Hopkins was as great. And that's the era before this one, right? That's the 90s, early 2000s era. We're talking just this era versus the 80s Marvin Hagler. Nobody, Triple G, Canelo, or a pimple on marvelous Marvin Hagler's ass, Adv- advantage 80s. Super middleweight. The best super middleweight of this era is Charlo, without a doubt. Undisputed. He's not on the level of Mike McCollum and Thomas Hearns. They were greater fighters. Charlo would get knocked out by both Hearns and McCollum. It would be no contest. And I love Charlo. He's not on the level of those brothers. Period. Welterweights. Errol Spence is Eli's favorite fighter. I love Errol Spence. He's the best welterweight of this era, without a doubt. He wasn't greater than the Sugar Ray Leonard from 1979 to 1982. He wasn't greater than Thomas Hearns from that era. Now, it wouldn't be an easy fight for Hearns or or Leonard. Spence would give Hearns hell because of Spence's body punching. Spence has a shot at beating Hearns, and I hate to say this, Eli, because Spence is your favorite fighter. Hearns is my favorite fighter. Spence has a great chin. Spence goes to the body, and if he could survive Hearns' jab and right cross, anything's possible if they go late into the fight. He, ha- he would be a live underdog versus Hearns. Errol Spence has no shot at beating a prime Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard's too quick, Those combinations, and once he hurts Spence, and he will, he will go to the body and put Spence out. And so that's why I have to give Leonard in the 1980s, that era, the edge over Errol Spence. But Errol Spence is a bad motherfucker. Errol Spence is the first ballot Hall of Famer. Okay. Junior welterweights this era versus the 80s. Terrence Crawford and Josh Taylor are the best junior welterweights of this era. Neither one would stand a chance against Aaron DeHawk prior. Aaron the Hawk Prye was the greatest 140-pound fighter I ever saw. I will never see another fighter like Aaron Pry. Aaron Pry had a great chin. He could box when he wanted to, underrated defensively. He threw punches and bunches, and he hit. And when he hurt you, it was over. And he was the most duck fighter of that era. Now we go to lightweights. You got the, the the so-called Fab Four of this, <laughs> the, the, the four kings that don't fight each other: Javante uh, Garcia, Teo Lomachenko, right? Devin Haney. None of those guys are on Pernell Sweet Pea Whitaker's level, the greatest lightweight of the 1980s. All right, they all he'd beat all of them convincingly. Junior lightweights. The best junior lightweight today in this era, Shakur Stevenson, would beat any of the junior lightweights from the 1980s. I'm going to discount Alex Aguayo because uh, his title reign e- ended in 1980. But the Rocky Lockwiches and the Tony Lopez's and the Julio Cesar Chavezes, and the Azuma Nelsons of the 1980s, in my opinion, would lose to Shakur Stevenson. Shakur Stevenson is going to go down as one of the three greatest defensive fighters of all time. He's going to be right up there with Pernell and Floyd. Shakur has all the skill set. People might think I'm smoking. I'm going to go see Shakur be the first fight I attend in six years. Shakur's that dude. Shakur would have beaten all those guys. Chavez has problems with with a Shakur Stevenson type fighter. He would make Chavez miss all night long. Shakur Stevenson has the edge. We go to featherweights. Nobody in this era is messing with Salvador Sanchez. End of story. Or Azuma Nelson at featherweight. Nobody today. Vargas, none of those cats. Right. Gary Russell, none of them. None of them. Now we go to 122 pounds. Cool boy, Stephen Fulton. I love Stephen Fulton. He would give Wilfredo Gomez problems, but if he tried and slug with Wilfredo Gomez, Gomez would knock him out. Fulton has a bad habit of doing that, so I give the edge to Gomez. But Fulton could also be alive on the dog. weights. This is, the, the edge goes to your era, this era. Naomi Inouye is a greater fighter than my favorite Bantamweight of the 1980s, the greatest Bantamweight I've ever seen, but if you put Jolt and Jeff Chandler in the ring with Naomi Noe, it would be akin to Inouye's a, a first fight with Donair. Chandler would give him hell, but Inoi's superior, superior power and body punching would win out in the end. And then we go down to uh, Super flyweights. Super Flyweight was a new division back then, but you had one of the greatest 115-pound fighters in all time in K.O.S.A. Galaxy. And if you want to put him in against Chocolatito, that would be an explosive fight. Explosive fight! That's a pick em fight. I... Sh- I would give the slight edge to Galaxy because he had a long range, a long, uh, longer reign of, uh, uh, as far as being the king of 115, but that would be a tough fucking fight, man. Either way, I will begrudgingly go with Galaxy, but Chocolatina would be possibly the favorite in that fight. The best flyweight of the 1980s, the flyweight title in the 1980s kept changing hands over and over and over again, just like the best flyweights of today. So, uh, quality-wise, I'd give the edge to the 1980s, but but uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't argue if you'd say 112 pounds. All right. And the same will be said for 105, 108 pounds. But if you look at the best fighters, the greatest fighters of the 80s are greater than the greatest fighters of this era. And great question, Eli. Great question. Man, Thomas Hearns versus Errol Spence would be a great fight. That's probably the best fight to be made of the 1980s to today uh, at 147. A 1980 81 Thomas Hearns before be, versus Errol Spence before his car car accident. That would be an amazing fight. All right, I want to thank you fellas for those great questions. I told this this show's been over an hour. Damn, hate doing that, but we continue. Let's go on to my historical retrospective on terrible Terry Norris, one of the greatest. Junior middleweights of all time. Okay, he's my number twenty-nine greatest fighter of the last forty-five years. And I begin. Terry Norris was one of the ten greatest fighters of the nineteen nineties. At five foot nine, he was an incredible boxer puncher who dominated the one hundred and fifty-four pound division. From 1990 to 1997, Norris reigned on three occasions as WBC Super Welterweight Champion and was the first boxer in the history of the division to unify the title with another sanctioning body. All of these attributes combined to make Norris the 29th greatest fighter of the last 29 years. Terry Norris was a tremendous amateur boxer while growing up in Lubbock, Texas, losing only four of his 295 amateur fights. Norris then relocated to San Diego, where he began his professional career. After winning 21 of his first 23 fights, on July 30th, 1989, Norris earned a crack at WBA 154-pound champion Julian Jackson. While watching the fight on television, neither my father nor I had heard of Norris and figured he had no shot against the power-punching champion. We were instantly impressed as Norris put on a brilliant display of boxing in the opening round. Norris showed great lateral movement, a nice left jab, and quick combinations. Norris continued to impress the following r- round until the midway part of the round. Jackson trapped Norris against the ropes and landed a spectacular right cross that paralyzed Norris. After getting hit, hit with a follow up left hook and another right, Norris went down face first with a thud. He got up at the count of nine but was in no condition to continue. My father fell after this performance performance that Norris's chin would be a detriment to his career. Norris rebounded to win his next three fights to earn another shot at a 154-pound world title. This time it would come on March 31st, 1990 against another power puncher, WBC champion John the Beast Mugabe. Norris was a huge underdog because no one expected him to stand up once he was hit on the chin by Mugabe, one of the few fighters to ever seriously hurt Marvin Hagler in a fight. As he did against Jackson, Norris boxed brilliantly in the opening round against Mugabe. Less than a minute into the round, Norris landed a crushing left hook off his jab that staggered and dropped the champion. Mugabe got up and was out on his feet. With about 20 seconds left in the round, Mugabe landed a bomb of a right cross that knocked Mugabe face first to the canvas and out. Norris won the title in stunning and impressive fashion my father and I both agreed that Norris was an exceptional boxer, and at 22 years of age, the sky was the limit for the Texas native. Still, our biggest concern was his chin. For the next three and a half years, Norris was one of the top five fighters in the world. He would defeat one great former welterweight champion after another. The first great welterweight champion he defended his title against would be the first and only time my father and I saw the legendary Sugar Ray Leonard fight live. It would be Norris's coming out party. On February 9th, 1991, I took my father on his 43rd birthday to see Norris defend his title at Madison Square Garden against Leonard. Leonard was 34 years old the night of the fight. He fought like he was 10 years older than my father. From the opening bell, Leonard took a beating similar to the one Muhammad Ali took in his ill-fated comeback fight against Larry Holmes. For 12 rounds, Norris batted Leonard all over the ring. At any point in the fight, Norris could have stepped it up a notch and put Leonard to sleep. Like Holmes with Ali, Norris idolized Leonard and carried him the full 12 rounds. Norris was now a big-time name in the world of boxing. He would destroy former welterweight champions like Meldrick Taylor, Donald Curry, and Maurice Blocker. Then on the night of December 18, 1993, against another former world champion, Norris's Achilles, Achilles heel would rear his ugly head. Norris had successfully defended his title 10 times before that fateful night in Mexico. His opponent, Simon Brown, was a former unified welterweight champion who many experts felt was a shot fighter and made to order for Norris. Someone forgot to tell Brown that. Norris took the fight to Brown and landed several big bombs for the first three and a half rounds. Brown, unlike Norris, had a tremendous chin and had never been knocked out. Late in the fourth round, Norris was landing at will against Brown when he walked into a booming right cross. Norris, like he did against Jackson, fell face first to the canvas. He was completely unconscious and no longer champion in one of the greatest upsets in the history of the Super Welterweight division. Five months later, Norris regained the title by fighting a very tactical fight and winning a lopsided uh, decision. Then came a series of bizarre fights against journeyman Luis Santana. On November 12th, 1991, Norris again, oh, no, I got the date wrong. My bad, my bad. 1994. November 12, 1994, Norris once again traveled to Mexico to defend his title against the light-hitting Santana. Norris was having his way against his overmatched opponent when referee Mitch Halpin called for him to break wall against the ropes. Norris seemingly tapped Santana with, left, with a left hook to the back of his head. Santana then proceeded to act as though he had been struck by lightning. Santana fainted as though he was dying and was carried on on a stretcher. Norris was disqualified for landing what appeared to be a harmless rabbit punch. He didn't put any power behind that punch and lost his title in the most bogus way possible. Now, quick side note before continuing with the article. This was the WBC allowing this decision to be upheld. In the history of boxing, it has always been impossible to win the fight by disqualification. You're supposed to be given time to recuperate, and if you can't recuperate, you lose. Especially from a meaningless tap to the back of the head. <sighs> anyway, I continue. Five months later, in the subsequent rematch, Norris was disqualified again after landing a right-hand bomb several seconds after round three had ended. Once again, Santana wild was well, one while being carted out on a stretcher. Finally, on August 19, 1995, Norris destroyed Santana in two rounds to win the WBC 154-pound title for a third time. His next major fight would be as personal as any prize fight I've ever seen. After each of his fights, Norris' is very attractive white Kelly would be seen with him while he was being interviewed inside the ring. What was unknown to boxing fans was that there was a strain in the marriage due to Norris's infidelities. This resulted in Kelly herself being unfaithful to Terry. She began seeing another boxer who would eventually become the IBF Super Welterweight Champion. On December 16, 1995, Norris would face that fight in a 150, would face that fighter in a 154 pound title unification fight. It wasn't the first fight between two reigning Super World League champions, but it was the first time that both governing bodies would sanction such a fight. Norris would face 27-year-old fellow resident of San Diego, the IBF champion, Paul Veyton. Veyton had been with, had been involved with Kelly for several months before she went back to Terry. Give the devil its due. Don King didn't use the love triangle as a way to promote the fight. Norris administered a one-sided beating to Vayton, hitting him at will for the entire 12 rounds. Every time he had Vayton in trouble, Norris would back, up, back off. Hindsight is 20-20, but it's easily explainable that he wanted to punish Vayton for en- engaging in an affair with Kelly. It would be the last great performance of Norris' esteemed career. Norris would defend his title four times before finally losing the super welterweight title for the final time. On December 6, 1997, he was batted and beaten by Keith Mullings, a solid but not great fighter in nine rounds. After two more losses, Norris would finally retire in 1999 at the age of 31 with a career record of 47-9 with 31 knockouts. Terry Norris was an incredible boxer who achieved greatness in the sport of boxing despite the lack of a good chin. Through three 154 pound title reigns. He successfully defended that title 16 times. He was elected into the International Box Hall of Fame on his first ballot. All of this accumulated, all of this accumulated in Terry Norris becoming the 29th greatest fighter of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being patient during this very extensive episode. Didn't expect it to be this long, but once again, I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate all the listeners coming in week in and week out to listen to my pound for pound podcast. Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.